You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. When I first moved to Portland in 1997, I could not believe my luck. No, it wasn't that I got an apartment downtown with a view of the skyline for 560 bucks although that was pretty lucky, rodents and water leakage notwithstanding. And it wasn't that my grandpa let me have his old lime green 1973 Plymouth Valiant to drive around in, although I was also lucky to be gifted a car like that. No, the real luck from my girlfriend and I was that just down the street from our apartment at Southwest 12th Avenue in Maine was the St. Francis Hotel, a shabby old three-story brick residential hotel dating to 1927, where elderly people would gather in the afternoons on the sidewalk and I also remember it had an unremarkable Chinese restaurant on the ground floor, the Golden China. The real reason I was interested in the St. Francis, though, was that it provided a key location for one of our favorite movies, Drugstore Cowboy. Released in 1989 and starring Matt Dillon, it was the second feature by an upstart young Portland writer-director named Gus Van Sant, following 1988's Malanoche. Drugstore Cowboy was also part of what was to become Van Sant's Portland trilogy, along with 1991's masterful My Own Private Idaho. Drugstore Cowboy in particular, though, the middle film, made its director a household name in world cinema, with awards including Best Film and Best Director from the National Society of Film Critics. But together, the three films of the trilogy have become a priceless time capsule of 1980s and early 90s Portland. Van Sant was born in Louisville, Kentucky, and first moved here in the late 1960s during his teens, attending Catlin Gable School before leaving to study art and film at the Rhode Island School of Design. After graduation, while working as a production assistant in Los Angeles, Van Sant began to spend time in the more down-and-out sections of the city near Hollywood Boulevard. He began observing and interacting with young street kids living in poverty amidst all that richness. They would provide a nearly career-long artistic inspiration to Van Sant, although he initially transposed that to Portland. To film his feature debut, Malanoche, an adaptation of poet Walt Curtis's autobiographical novel, Van Sant returned to Portland where the book was set. Released in 1988, it was called the year's best independent film by the Los Angeles Times, and it was enough to attract Universal Studios' interest. Instead of taking the offer to direct a film from a big studio like Universal, though, Van Sant instead moved back to Portland full-time and made Drugstore Cowboy for the independent studio New Line Cinema. The film chronicles a small group of drug addicts in early 1970s Portland who rob pharmacies to support their addictions. It's as much a quirky, quixotic tale as it is an unflinching drama. The critic Roger Ebert wrote, It is about criminals who do not intend to be particularly bad people, but whose lives run away with them. That somehow fits Portland, and especially the Portland of that time in the 80s and 90s, a a place for dreamers even more than today, perhaps. And many of those dreamers feeling melancholy and a sense of unfulfillment, yet 
possessing a kind of joyous spirit. Today to consider both the building and its role in the career of Portland's greatest movie director, we've got first for you an interview with film critic Mark Mohan, who has been a longtime contributor to The Oregonian and many other publications. I used to be a movie critic myself in the late 90s and early 2000s for Willamette Week, and I attended many of screening with Mark, talking about Gus Van Sant and all our favorite filmmakers. Mark continues to write about film, but these days he's also pursuing another career in the law, which he argues is actually not that different from writing a movie review. It's all about making an argument. Luckily, we're already on the same side. In our second interview, we're going to set Gus Van Sant aside and think about the real residents of the St. Francis Hotel, both the original building before it was torn down in 2001 and the new St. Francis that was built on the same site afterward and remains in operation today. We'll talk with two people who know the St. Francis past and present very well and who are on the front lines of our ongoing affordable housing crisis, Bobby Weinstock of the Northwest Pilot Project and Merrill Baker of Home Forward. I'm thinking now of my favorite line from Drugstore Cowboy, speaking about drug addiction. We played a game you couldn't win to the utmost. And I think the St. Francis, in a sense, the original one, did that too. The overwhelming majority of buildings get demolished within 50 years or often within 25 years. That old St. Francis made it 80 years to a variety of struggling people and dreamers, and I wish it had made it more. But in a certain sense, thanks to that movie, it is immortal. And now, if it doesn't sound too corny, lights, camera, action. Mark Mohan is a longtime Portland writer who has reviewed movies for The Oregonian for nearly 20 years, in addition to writing for publications like The Stranger, The Portland Mercury, and Oregon Arts Watch. He's also the co-author of 2006's Does This Cape Make Me Look Fat? Pop Psychology for Superheroes, <laughs> which he co-wrote with his wife, the now best-selling and highly acclaimed author Chelsea Kane. I'm a fan of hers as well. Um, Mark has served as president of the local film critics nonprofit organization Far From Hollywood, and he used to own one of my favorite video stores, Video Verite, on Mississippi. As if that weren't enough, Mark is also a law student at Lewis and Clark College on track to earn his law degree in 2020. So, Mark, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, I'm really happy to be able to talk about Gus Van Sant, and uh, um, Drugstore Cowboy is is the excuse to talk more broadly about his work uh, with, of course, an emphasis on his earlier films, I guess, as you probably say about mm-hmm. a lot of artists, like, oh, I love their earlier work, you know? <laughs> right. His earlier, funnier work, although yeah, that's yeah. not necessarily true yeah. in this case. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, as it relates to Drugstore Cowboy, um, do you feel like this hypothesis is basically correct that this is the movie that for the rest of the film world kind of put him on the map? Because he had made Malinoche, and, and mm-hmm. it's not that that wasn't acclaimed, but it seems to me like you know, given that it won some of the National Film Critic Awards that it did and so forth, and, and just that it, the kind of, um, you know, buzz that it had in, in the culture, mm-hmm. um, do you feel like that's kind of where the world became aware of Gus Van Sant? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really fair to say. Um, you know, certainly among this kind of, you know, film buff, cognoscenti world, um, I just watched the movie again a couple of days ago, and afterwards was scrolling through the internet and came across Roger Ebert's review of the movie mm-hmm. from when it was originally released. Um, and, and, and he raves about it. He gives it four stars. He says it's one of the best films of the year. He says it's one of the best films he's ever seen about addiction. Um, 
and I was sort of surprised by that because I, I thought that it was a little bit later that he really started to get those sorts of raves from big time critics and get that level of exposure. But, um, but I think, and like you say, Malanoche was acclaimed by people who saw it, but mm-hmm. not very many people saw it. And Drugstore Cowboy, you know, broke through into the art house cinema world, at least such as it was at that point. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's that that's what got him started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'd love to hear what you uh, particularly responded to or liked or disliked about the movie. Like for me, for example, I feel like what I respond to most is actually the things that don't really necessarily drive the interview, uh, the narrative, but are these little exclamation points like in my mm. own private idaho it would be that that crazy shot of the the house falling from the sky right, onto right. the highway well i think it's i think it's similar to that i think one of the if, if there's a through line in in his in his style uh it is that way that he mixes really naturalistic performances and kind of naturalistic uh plot um with these surreal touches and i think like private idaho is probably kind of the pinnacle of that because mm-hmm. it, you've got the shakespeare stuff going on you've got all those like you mentioned those surreal moments um and then even some of the artier later movies that he that he made um you know jerry and elephant and some of those that that aren't so much crazy surreal imagery but still have things going on that are outside the narrative that are really key to the experience of the movie, but still have performances that are very grounded and and typically pretty realistic. So I think that's that tension is really interesting, and I think the performances in in Drugstore Cowboy are are quite amazing. And I love especially the smaller roles these these kind of oddball actors that Max Perlich and, mm-hmm. and Grace Zabriskie, who plays Matt Dillon's mom. Um, and Matt Dillon himself, who's you know almost cons- he's he's been underrated as an actor for so long that mm-hmm. that, um, that it's kind of astonishing to me. Um, but he gives one of his best performances um, mm-hmm. in the movie mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting that certain directors uh, like Gus Van Sant or, or Quentin Tarantino is famous for this as well. Uh, uh, seeing something in an actor, whether it's a kind of unknown character actor or maybe somebody who is famous for something else and seeing how they may have range that hasn't been tapped or or mm-hmm. even how our knowledge of them and other films can kind of be part of what we're signing up for and that you know if you see Matt Dillon playing a drug addict you would have been thinking about Matt Dillon in The Outsiders or other mm-hmm. work that he'd done and and that it was a, a a story a movie about ultimately about his character's redemption but um, there was a little bit of a maybe minor degree of redemption going on for Matt Dillon at a kind of key stage in his career, kind mm-hmm. of like River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves, in a sense, in my own private Idaho, having a chance to graduate to a new kind of maybe mm-hmm. adult role. Mm-hmm. I think you can even see it um, with something like Robin Williams in Good Will Hunting, right? I mean, Robin Williams had done dramatic stuff before, but um, but knowing the persona that he brought to that performance, I think really added to it as well. So mm-hmm. even the, you know, the, the younger performers and the smaller movies, but also even the quote-unquote Hollywood stuff he did. I think that's true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, of course, the other reason that I wanted to talk about uh, Gunst Van Sant on this show is because, to me, these early films, this early trilogy of Malanoche and Drugstore Cowboy and My, My Own Private Idaho, they, they be, have become this kind of time capsule of, of early 90s Portland, and, and now we might also frame it as ungentrified Portland in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's the St. Francis Hotel or, or other uh, parts of Portland in, in that film, what what comes to mind to you first uh, as being part of that Gus Van Sant time capsule? Yeah, well, as far as Drugstore Cowboy, um, you know, the St. Francis obviously was a, was a huge landmark downtown that now is, is you know, 
gone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for me, the things when I saw the movie that 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 really you know struck home um, when I watched it again, that is to say, were uh, the Lovejoy columns, mm-hmm. um, which were these you know for people who don't know, they they supported this this uh, viaduct at the west end of the Broadway Bridge, mm-hmm. Lovejoy Street, um, mm-hmm. that was then later demolished. And the, these columns were painted, I think, in the 1930s or something. But there's a whole story about yeah, the, the guy a, who painted them. Yeah, there's a Greek immigrant who, who painted them. Tom might be like Stamopoulos or something that sounds, that sounds very, phonetically very similar to yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, he was some kind of railroad worker who just... Um, engaged in what to him was a, a kind of graffiti that was a little bit more informed by um, kind of classical, um, you know, artwork. Mm-hmm. And you and you can see them in the in the Super Eight footage that sort of opens the movie, and then over the closing credits, mm-hmm. the characters are just kind of goofing around uh, around these columns. Um, and it was quite a loss when those things they they weren't. I think only one of them was saved and now stands somewhere near its original site, mm-hmm. a sort of a monument. Um, yeah, in the Pearl District. Uh, yeah. Uh, at the Elizabeth Condos, uh, I think maybe on Ninth, uh, there's one of them there. Yeah, but the rest are gone, and and so that that in itself is just a great piece of kind of archaeology. Um, and then the the apartment on Irving Street where they mm-hmm. stay as well, which is still there, mm-hmm. and I think is in similar condition. I don't know. I haven't been by there recently, but I used to walk by that all the time. And mm-hmm. um, I had moved to Portland in 1991, so the movie had been out for a couple years, but I hadn't seen it. And when mm-hmm. I did finally watch it. It was kind of like that thrill. I'd never lived in a city where where people made movies before, and uh-huh. it, and it just felt so special that this 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 was an actual location in a really good movie, um, and it really existed. Um, so I, I love that stuff. And and you know when you think about especially the stuff that's in Old Town, and you know, Malanoche is amazing for this too. You see mm-hmm. the, all this stuff that. Um, has been completely gentrified now. Mm-hmm. Things that used to be loading docks with, you know, just railroad tracks going through are still kind of the same buildings, but now they're Peruvian restaurants mm-hmm. and import shops and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I don't know if, how, how fortuitous it was or if he thought at the time that he was preserving some aspect of Portland, but it certainly turned out that way. Mm-hmm. What do you make of uh, kind of the long road in many films that uh, have come since Drugstore Cowboy. Uh, you know, uh, we joked about it at the beginning that, that we all have this tendency to sort of say, I, lo- I love these bands' early records and I love mm-hmm. this filmmaker's early films and, and uh, you know, then they sold out. or, or right. you know, So it's a, in a way, it's a cliche for me to even introduce this as a, as a kind of conversation topic. But, you know, it's something that so many artists grapple with, uh, directors or otherwise, uh, uh, kind of how much do they want to um, kind of trade gaining a, a larger audience and a, and a larger budget um, for maybe a little bit of lost uh, control or freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, we, we, I think, would both agree that um, there have come since Drugstore Cowboy and since this early trilogy some films that we like and sometimes maybe a few films that we're not so crazy about. And, mm-hmm. and that's, the I suppose, the way just about anybody's, any director's career, any filmmaker's career ultimately turns out. You know, um, very few filmmakers, if any, don't have some duds. And sometimes that's the price of, of trying things and trying new things. But, um, you know... Um, how do, what do you think about um, the kind of in and out? Of the, it feels like there are these kind of ebbs and flows where um, you know he'll he'll work more independently for a while and make sort of some more artistic films like a in the mid career as you said with with Jerry and uh, Last Days and Elephant, uh, um, but then he 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 never really quite sticks to that. I I feel almost like there's something a little bit chameleon like or or elusive about Gus Van Sant, almost maybe like in a 
like a Warholian sense. Like, uh, mm. I feel like he doesn't really care about those labels, and and um, you know, he probably feels like it's worth it to try things and and try new things. And yet, you know, I don't want to completely let him off the hook. Mm -hmm. just as you, you know, have to be honest about any artist's uh, successes and failures. And yeah. so, you know, how do you see that whole road for him? Well, I, I, I think it's interesting. Um, definitely, right, Goodwill Hunting is, is sort of the pivot point there, right? Like mm -hmm. he kind of went and made a, a, you know, what at the time was an indie indie movie, but became a huge hit, mm -hmm. um, you know, had Oscar notice, buzz, nominations. It won an Oscar. Yeah, for screen, um, screenwriting. Yeah, yep. Yeah, um, and... Uh, and I think, I would say, I don't think that there are any of his films that I would look at and say that he made them um, sort of against his better judgment or, mm -hmm. or just for the paycheck. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's true. Um, I, I think even, even the ones that didn't come off well, or what, Promised Land was one that kind of came and went. Um, even the most recent one, the, John, uh, the, the Callahan movie, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which was, you know, it was fine. But I'm not sure it quite, you know, yeah. captured that. I think that one's a really interesting example because I think that's a movie that really came from his heart. I think it's a it's a subject that was really close to him for many many years. He was going to make it with Robin Williams and mm -hmm. then and then couldn't um, and got it made. And as Portlanders, we see that movie and and it just doesn't seem to capture either Portland or Callahan in all their kind of ragged glory. Yeah. Um, but I don't, you know. I don't think that was due to cynicism or laziness on his part. I think I think he's really trying, but maybe, you know, at a certain point there just isn't quite that willingness to take risks in you yeah. know, inherently. Yeah. Um, it's a lot more conventional filmmaking and I yeah. I, I I I feel similarly about that movie. I saw it and um, uh, could f could feel that it was not a bad conventional movie, but um, I just kind of was surprised in some ways that, uh, first of all, it seems to be a movie set in Portland about a Portland cartoonist that is largely filmed in Hollywood. And mm -hmm. so you don't get the same light and, and all that stuff. And then, uh, you know, it seems to be kind of a movie about AA meetings in a way. Mm -hmm. And yet you kind of gather that the character is really kind of searching for his mother in a certain sense. And the thing that struck me is, that's the same thing that River Phoenix is going through in my own private Idaho. You have two different Phoenix brothers who are searching for their mothers, and yet, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. there's none of the kind of surreal um, insertion and, and sense of experimentation, and, and it's not even filmed in Portland. And, and so, um, you know, I just felt like, you know, I almost wanted to pat him on the back and say, like, you know, like, you're, you're better than this. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And yet, who the heck am I to say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I... I it's interesting that you mentioned Idaho in that context because um, I thought of Drugstore Cowboy. I mean, it's a recovery narrative. Mm -hmm. um, he'll never get far on foot is. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so is the last third of Drugstore Cowboy. And, you know, I don't know um, what, you know, where that, that interest in those sorts of stories comes from. But, but it certainly seems to be part of what he's interested in is people recovering from trauma or addiction or um, to trying to get over hurdles in their lives. Mm -hmm. But like you say... There's a, there's a way to do that that's really interesting and gets into that experience, and there's another way that that is, I don't want to say trite, but it's, you know, trite adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it always, the, you know, the reputations of films always remains fluid, and and um, different generations glob onto or or feel 
uh, that certain films resonate with them in a different way than we might expect. And, and uh, you know, maybe somebody, maybe someday in a couple of generations, people won't think Citizen Kane is such a masterpiece for oh, all I know. I doubt it. Perish but. the thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, um, what's, let's say your best guess about um, the timelessness uh, of cinema mm-hmm. as cinema mm-hmm. for for a film like Drugstore Cowboy or, or um, my my own personal favorite, which is my own private Idaho. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I, I, when I think of that, I, I try to think almost of the reverse. And maybe in 50 years, people will look at even Cowgirls Get the Blues and realize what a misunderstood film it was yes. when it came out. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, that's entirely possible. I, I, I think you're right that those two are probably the most, have the most staying power. Um I also think a movie that we haven't mentioned yet, you know, that's that's in the sort of Hollywood pile is Milk, which mm-hmm. I think is is a you know noteworthy film, uh, a really good movie. It won an Oscar, deservedly so for the lead performance in mm-hmm. it by Sean um, Penn. By Sean Penn, it it was you know socio culturally you know a, a potent movie when it came out. Um, so I think I think that's one that you know of of the ones that aren't the the most indie sort of sort of films mm-hmm. um that people will look back on um and then i think even like the other the other mid career movies you mentioned that are arty and obscure and influenced by hungarian auteurs and mm-hmm. so forth mm-hmm. um or british auteurs in the case of elephant um i think those stand a chance of of sticking around um you know that's quite often the case right the movies that aren't the biggest commercial successes the first time out mm-hmm. or the most kind of mainstream end up acquiring a greater reputation. I mean, Vertigo mm-hmm. is kind of, you know, the p- perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of any movies we haven't named yet. I don't think Finding Forrester no. will probably end up there. That And that's pro- that may, in fact, be my least favorite of, of his films that I've seen because it felt like a goodwill hunting, warmed over yes. scenario. I remember uh, my partner Valerie and I coming out of the theater being almost angry, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, just because... You know, angry because we love Gus Van Sant, mm-hmm. not because right. we want to, um, you know, shit on him or something. But, right. you know, you hold the artists that you love the most to the highest standards because you know what they're capable of. And it wasn't to say that he had to go make, um, you know, my own private Idaho, too, or, you know, m- my own secure uh, Alabama or something. <laughs> um, uh, but but still, uh, you know, so w- you're right. We do have to give these artists permission to change. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, we have to give them permission to to, to make mistakes or to do things that don't work out. But uh, I do think um, that that latter trilogy that you mentioned of, of, of Jerry and uh, the Cannes winning Elephant and right. uh, Last Days right. it is a kind of um, confirmation of his greatness. And it makes mm-hmm. it uh, a case where it isn't just all about the early work. You know, it, it, it really literally isn't true with Gus Van Sant because of that mid-career period. Yeah. And uh, I think even of a film like uh, Last Days, I always kind of surprise myself that I like it because it's almost an entire movie where the character doesn't say things that you can legibly understand. Yeah. It's like a character mumbling for 90 minutes, and yet there are a couple of moments in that movie that are so powerful, like at the beginning of the movie when the Kurt Cobain character uh, kind of wanders into this um, uh, rapids of a, of a river and then later where he's just, uh, there's a scene where he's just kind of playing around with the guitar and, and the, the camera pulls back very, very slowly out of the room uh, and through the window and out and you're hearing all this guitar feedback and it's basically paying homage to a, a similar scene in Citizen Kane uh, where the young Charles Foster Kane, I believe it is, yeah. uh, where the young Charles Foster Kane is playing with this um, 
playing in the snow with his rosebud sled, and then the camera comes out uh, uh, out of the snow into the house where his future is being decided, and he's being given up um, to a guardian uh, by his parents. And and so uh, you know, I feel like that's part of it too. That 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 greatest great artists are uh, aware of other artists, and and they're building on that tradition. And so you see Gus Van Sant getting inspired by other filmmakers, like by Orson Welles in that sense, or um, you were mentioning, you know, Hungarian artists. And I remember I got to interview Gus Van Sant around the time of Jerry, and, mm-hmm. and it was, as you know, Bella Tara that he was yeah. talking about, these yeah. super long takes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the other thing, too, is that um, the artistry of these mid-career um, gems like Jerry and, and Elephant and Last Days, it's a different filmmaking style um, a different kind of film vocabulary. He's not inserting Super 8, and he's not doing these right. surreal sequences. He's doing these super long takes where he's in the uh, hallways of a high school, an elephant, and the camera on, I guess, Steadicam is mm-hmm. is following students around for, you know, minutes or something. Yeah. And so it's great to see him uh, succeed in different kinds of vocabulary, you know, that he has a, a sort of like a, a hard day's night period and a, and a wide <laughs> album period or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and when you, when you talk about the uh, paying homage to other filmmakers, I also think of this, of Psycho, mm-hmm. um, which again was not a success by most measures, but was, you know, I think regardless of, of how successful you think it was, you still have to admire the moxie of doing a shot-for-shot remake mm-hmm. of Psycho mm-hmm. and using some of the capital that he'd earned over the years for that very weird passion project. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So again, like I, I applaud I applaud the, the intention and the effort even when the result may fall short. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that Psycho project is a is a an interesting one because he he placed these extra degrees of difficulty on himself like mm-hmm. he he had the kind of perverse audacity like the almost like the kind of like a you know naughty child to say like I'm going to mm-hmm. remake one of the most beloved films of all time by one of the most beloved filmmakers of all time but I'm not even going to allow myself the the artistic freedom to to pro, to approach the story a little differently I'm actually going to to do a shot for shot remake and 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 almost like turn down these opportunities for my own artistry and I'm actually going to somehow find a different kind of artistry in these limitations and yeah. so that's interesting too yeah he 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 has and, and as an extra hurdle i'm going to put vince vaughn in it <laughs> <laughs> now that's Sorry. a hurdle i don't think he cleared <laughs> no, probably not <laughs> i think uh, i think he's kind of lying on the track for that choice yeah, but maybe yeah. that's just my own taste uh, i also wanted to ask you something that has nothing to do actually with uh, drugstore cowboy or, or even gus van santa um, you've made a little bit of a, a of a course change career-wise you're still writing about film but you're also going to law school and and you're on your way to becoming an attorney and, and really kind of getting involved in fighting for different types of social justice. And so I find that really fascinating to think about what the connecting threads may or may not be for, for a film critic um, going into that line of work and, and making that kind of commitment. Yeah, well, there, uh, there are some similarities. And I, I think the, the primary one, although they both involve a lot of writing, it's very different kinds of writing, but they both involve a lot of writing. But but the main connection is that they're both different forms of advocacy. Um, as a critic, uh, my intention was always to sort of try and advocate for films that were, um, you know, under the radar, didn't have the marketing muscle behind them that huge studio movies did. Um, my goal was to expose those movies to people to the eyes of readers, um, and so in a sense, if if uh, if my plans go go as I envision, and I end up doing the same thing from a legal standpoint, you know, trying to help people who 
uh, are maybe under the radar and don't have power and money behind them um, mm-hmm. the way that some others do, um, then it's kind of the same kind of work, although obviously in a, in a different field. Um, so, you know, I, I, that's that's the connection I see. Um, that's what I put on my application to Lewis and Clark, and they seem to buy it, so mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to go with it. Well, you know, it also strikes me that... Uh, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you were inspired by a kind of moment of crisis that you saw and I saw and others saw after the election of 2016. And and yet, uh, I think of uh, that, that Orson Welles quote in The Third Man about how countries that go through strife and, and difficulty and drama are usually the ones that produce great art. And and then you have Switzerland that had 200 years right. of peace and they produced the cuckoo clock. And, you know, you have Germany producing Mozart and Goethe and stuff. And so... If you judge by that rationale, we should be producing some masterpieces in America right now. I guess by that by that reasoning, we should, and 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 we are. I mean, there's always great stuff being being created. Um, I have to say that sometimes these days, I would settle for a boring life full of cuckoo clocks. Yes, yes. Uh, my ancestors are are Swiss, and and I feel like they're maybe trying to tell me that uh, across the generations as well. So. <laughs> Well, uh, Mark, thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, My uh, pleasure. I really uh, enjoyed uh, the good old days when I was a film critic, and we would uh, uh, chat now and then in the uh, empty uh, in the empty uh, movie theaters uh, uh, in the afternoon. And uh, so it's fun to talk with you again. Yeah, those were the days. It's great to see you again. Support for this podcast and for X Ray comes from Mutual Materials providing masonry and hardscape products to architects, designers, and homeowners. Whether it's brick, block, pavers, retaining walls, or stone veneer, Mutual Materials helps you create long-lasting indoor and outdoor spaces. Visit Mutual Materials' new showroom in northwest Portland or one of its 18 locations across the Pacific Northwest. To find more information, ideas, and project photos, visit mutualmaterials.com. Mutual Materials. Building beauty that lasts. Bobby Weinstock is a housing advocate at nonprofit social service agency Northwest Pilot Project. He's worked for the past 30 years helping homeless and at-risk seniors in Multnomah County to obtain an affordable apartment, including work with residents of the original St. Francis Hotel. Meryl Baker is also here. She's an asset manager with Home Forward, the nonprofit organization that manages the current St. Francis. She's worked in the affordable housing industry for over 15 years, specializing in affordable housing asset management and community lending. Thanks to you both for being on the show. Pleasure. So, Bobby, I'll start with you. Uh, I, I'd like to ask uh, about working with residents of the original St. Francis. Uh, who were they, and what do you remember from those days? And and you know, I'm just wondering anything about what the struggles of these people were, and and um, you know where they came from, and and how the St. Francis had fit into their lives that that you know of. So it was a very very diverse group, but I'll start with uh, what the group had in common. Mm-hmm. Um, so. What the group had in common is that they had very low incomes. Mm-hmm. And so they were all looking for a decent place to live downtown. Uh, they couldn't afford to have a car, so they wanted to be in the hub of the uh, transit system. Mm-hmm. And they wanted a safe and uh, modest but decent place to live. Mm-hmm. 
that brought them uh, to the St. Francis Hotel, mm-hmm. which was uh, at the intersection of uh, Southwest Eleventh uh, and Main. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lived on that block. You did. That's how I first got to know it. Uh, I lived in a little apartment building called the Jefferson Apartments. Uh, uh-huh. No, I'm sorry, not the Jefferson, the Empire Apartments on Jefferson. Um, uh, but, you know, I feel like I wanted to ask that question because I saw some of them on a daily basis in those days. I would see them sitting out, uh, you know, maybe sitting in the afternoon sunshine there, maybe some in wheelchairs or other just kind of old codgers in a in a chair. And, and I don't know if all of them were, were seniors. Were they all seniors? They weren't. Mm. Uh, there were folks in their 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were retired elderly folks. There were students. There were refugees. There were low-wage workers. There were folks who were getting disability checks uh, because of various physical or psychological uh, ailments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, There were men and women. It was mostly uh, single people because of the size of the rooms Mm -hmm. being so modest. Yeah, single room occupancy. (laughs) There were folks who lived there for a few months, and there were folks who lived there for decades. Mm -hmm. That's what I was just going to (laughs) ask. I imagine that was probably so. And and there would probably be some people that that everybody knew because they'd been there for a long time and that sort of thing, some some characters. Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And, you know, I'm interested also in the role that these old residence hotels, if that's the right word, played. Uh, you know, it seemed like before we even um, were talking so much about affordable housing, like uh, these these old hotels kind of quietly played an important role. And um, you know, uh, you know, I wonder how much you might see the the old St. Francis as as being part of uh, kind of a larger network that is kind of neat architecturally, but also was playing a really important role. What 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 exactly were these old hotels doing, um, what role were they playing? Well, there were two main characteristics of of the old hotels uh, in downtown Portland. Um, One was affordability. Um, So for folks who wanted to rent a room and had $75, you could rent a room by the week Mm. and uh, have a place to stay for 75 bucks. Mm Uh, for folks who had a little bit more money and wanted to get a room for a month at the St. Francis, the average monthly rent was two hundred and seventy-five dollars. Mm-hmm. So it gave folks a very modest means, a way to have a home mm-hmm. in downtown, mm-hmm. and uh, so that that was probably the most important function: their affordability. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. the but the other characteristic that's worth mentioning is they also were very uh, low barrier. So you didn't have to go through a whole lot of screening and a whole lot of interviewing and a whole lot of application process mm-hmm. in order to qualify to be approved to live there. Right. Um, and so it gave folks who might have some blemishes in their background with credit uh, or past evictions or you know minor criminal history mm-hmm. um, a way of uh, being approved uh, for a home. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. a lot of the old hotels were very low barrier in their admissions policies, including Mm -hmm. the St. Francis. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, when you helped people move out, when you were faced with the challenge of helping these people to get out of the St. Francis and and, uh, and go somewhere else, you know, uh, where were those somewheres else, I guess is the way to phrase it. Like, uh, what's your sense of, of, uh, you know, where they went? So just... 
uh, a little bit of context. There were 133 rooms in the St. Francis, and uh, there were 108 occupied rooms when we started the process of helping people move out. Of course, it's a shock to the system of all the residents when they first get notice that the building's going to be demolished and mm -hmm. that they're going to have to move. Um, but uh, kudos to, it was called the Housing Authority of Portland at that time, now called Home Forward. Uh, they were the owner, the new owner of the St. Francis, and the plan was for the building, the old hotel, to be demolished and replaced with a much nicer building, a mm -hmm. studio apartment building. Um, but folks were uh, understandably stressed and uh, anxious mm -hmm. about what was going to happen and how they would find new places to live, how they would afford the new places. Mm -hmm. But uh, the owner, Home Forward, uh, funded uh, a relocation service uh, through Northwest Pilot Project. Oh. I, I worked on the uh, – there were two relocation staff. I was one of them. Martha Gies was the other. Mm -hmm. And uh, Home Forward provided us with everything we needed to basically uh, calm the anxieties of the residents by assuring them that we would help them find alternative places to live downtown, that uh, the places would be decent and safe, that we would help with the actual physical process of moving their belongings. Mm -hmm. We would help with furniture. Uh, we would help with any difference between what they were paying at the St. Francis in rent and what their new rent was going to be. And then when the new St. Francis was constructed, we would help move them back if mm -hmm. they wanted to the newly constructed St. Francis. They had a promise of a right to return. Oh, great. Did many take, a, a, take that uh, option? I think many uh, thought they were going to take that option, but only 16 ended up taking it because they ended up liking their interim housing mm -hmm. and decided it wasn't necessary actually to move back to the completed St. Francis. Mm. Well, I'm so happy to hear that though. It, 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 I was almost afraid to ask a little bit, like, you know, you wonder like, did some of these people end up on the street or anything like that? Because, you know, the whole reason they were there in a sense is that they were vulnerable. Maybe Meryl transitioning. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about who might be living there today at the St. Francis, uh, who qualifies or what kinds of struggles they typically have, you know, um, um, you know what the what a snapshot of the of the resident population might look like now. Sure, and I think it's really interesting hearing what Bobby had to say about historical populations because um, I would say that the current population is very similar mm. to what it was um, before the property was rebuilt. Um, so currently at St. Francis Apartments, there are low-income households. Um, living there, ranging from 30 to 80 percent of the median income in Portland. Um, the rents at St. Francis range from $338 to $1,242, depending on the unit size and type of income. There's a lot of variables that mm -hmm. go into um, income certifying residents, um, household size, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so most in, uh, most residents live on fixed incomes and some live with mental health and substance use issues. So it can definitely be challenging on many levels for residents to keep housing 
one neat thing about affordable housing is that uh, we provide resident services programs to help keep residents in their units um, because ultimately that's our goal to keep people housed. Mm -hmm. Um, The location of the building is helpful, just like Bobby said, because it's in a central um, in central downtown um, and people are close to health care and services. And um, even though folks may struggle with alternate um, issues, just living with low income and experiencing poverty in our society is really hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So also, Meryl, I wonder if you could talk just a, a little bit about context. I wonder how the St. Fran- Francis fits into Home Forward's broader portfolio in a physical sense in terms of buildings or units? Um, So St. Francis is one building of roughly 100 buildings Mm -hmm. in Multnomah County and has 132 units in the total roughly 6,000 units that Home Forward has in its whole portfolio. And are these all some variation on what you might call an apartment building or or do they tend to be other types of of housing as well like are there duplexes that are part of that portfolio or other or is it mostly strictly higher density multi-story buildings it's mostly higher density because that's what's affordable for us to own and maintain mm-hmm. um there are few very few single family homes in the portfolio still mm-hmm. um and then also some smaller um under 20 unit properties, but mostly it's the larger um, over 50 unit multifamily buildings. I see. I see. And then um, I wonder if either of you could kind of just put into context for us uh, um, what the numbers or or your jobs are telling you about um, just big of a, how big of a challenge we have here. And I don't necessarily mean your opinion, but I'm wondering if there are any measurables like waiting lists or voucher lists that, that you can... Uh, recall that that maybe give us a sense of of how many people are waiting for um, a, a place in a St. Francis or or some kind of um, building like it. Sure. So um, according to Oregon Metro, uh, the greater Portland area is short about 48,000 affordable homes for renters. And um, damn. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. And um, as far as the voucher waiting lists go on the home forward housing choice voucher list there are over 3,000 households on that list and the list has been frozen since 2016 due to insufficient federal funding what do you know yeah it's systemic um when there's appropriate funding it will likely take two to three years to get vouchers to everyone on the waiting list Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. boy uh... so big need and you know maybe one final question for both of you, um, and, and this isn't maybe in in an official capacity, but I'm just interested in in doing your jobs. And um, you know there are probably moments where you feel like it tugs on your heart, or you feel like you're working upstream, or any of those kinds of cliches. And yet there's probably a lot of fulfillment and a lot of great personal stories that you see. I know that could be a whole nother hour long conversation and I should probably buy you a drink or something before I ask you that question. But what's it like for either of you doing your jobs? Well, I've been doing this uh, kind of work downtown with low income populations since 1982. And uh, it's been a privilege um, to work um, with the low income uh, residents of downtown Portland. As an example, when the St. Francis was just about to be demolished, uh, some of the residents, and we decided to have a going away party for this building. Uh. 
So the residents uh, all gathered in the lobby of the St. Francis. Many of the residents were uh, musicians. They formed a kind of an impromptu band. Oh, my goodness. Um, other residents were incredible chefs and prepared food f- for everyone at the going away party. Uh, there were artists. Uh, there was just an incredible display of talent. Mm-hmm. And it was just a good reminder that just uh, because someone might be low income and struggling uh, doesn't mean they don't, don't have a whole array of talents to offer and, uh, to the city. And, you know, that's precisely what I think, along with the movie itself, or maybe through the movie Drugstore uh-huh. Cowboy, got me interested in the idea that, that there are people who probably had great talents of some kind, and, and sometimes life just comes at you fast. I hate the way that I sounded like a commercial there. There's a commercial, like an insurance company commercial that sounds like that. But, you know, things happen to people. You know, you, you get laid off or you have some kind of physical or mental illness. And, and so I, I feel like I was sensing that there were some interesting kind of dreamers and talented people just like you're talking about, you know, and because that's the way it felt in the movie, like uh, the characters there, you know, one was played by William S. Burroughs, this amazing novelist. And, and uh, you know, you feel like there could have been a something like a real William S. Burroughs living in the St. Francis. That's how it felt walking past that place on the street. Um, but Meryl, what about for you? What's it like uh, from your perspective working with vulnerable people and, and sort of the slings and arrows uh, that go with that? Yeah, I think it can be challenging when we try to continue with our mission of keeping people housed, Mm -hmm. and yet people are living in extremely difficult circumstances just in their lives. And so it can be uh, like the mission can conflict with what needs to happen for Mm -hmm. a person versus enabling them to continue to live there, but also continuing to allow them to live their destructive lifestyles. And that... I think I tend to see more of those um, situations and they're rare, but it's hard because you have these conflicting, we want to keep people housed, but at the same time, it's not appropriate for the community. Mm -hmm. And so when do you draw that line between how many chances versus enabling? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's a big challenge and yet, but you you have to turn it around because you know that there are so many success stories that you don't hear about Mm -hmm. and folks that really do rely on stable, um, safe, affordable housing to really be able to move forward in life. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they you know, could be out on the streets or in a self-destructive phase. And housing is really ultimately one of the most important things to having success in your life. You bet. You bet. Well, uh, I really appreciate the chance to talk with you both. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And, and if it doesn't sound trite or, or corny, uh, I mean this sincerely. Thanks for doing what you do. Thank you. Thank you. have it. Thanks a bunch to our guests, Mark Mohan, Bobby Weinstock, and Meryl Baker. In the intro to this episode, I quoted the late great film critic Roger Ebert reviewing Drugstore Cowboy. I'd like to read you one other quote from Ebert, who was an influence on me back in my earlier days studying and writing about movies, and whom, incidentally, I once met and interviewed about 15 years ago aboard a cruise ship of all things. When Roger Ebert received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, a rarity for a movie critic for sure, He said this in his acceptance speech, quote, Movies are the most powerful empathy machine in all the arts. 
When I go to a great movie, I can live somebody else's life for a while. I can walk in somebody else's shoes. I can see what it feels like to be a member of a different gender, a different race, a different economic class, to live in a different time, to have a different belief. This is a liberalizing influence on me. It gives me a broader mind. It helps me to join my family of men and women on this planet. It helps me to identify with them so I'm not just stuck being myself day after day. The great movies enlarge us. They civilize us. They make us more decent people. End of quote. I was thinking about movies as empathy generators when I put this podcast episode together. Back when I first came across the St. Francis Hotel for the first time in the late 90s, down the street from my first apartment in Portland, I was interested in the building solely for its presence in the movie Drugstore Cowboy. Before Gus Van Sant, there was scarcely ever a movie director of international renown to come to Portland or even Oregon. I mean, there was James Blue, who grew up in Portland and graduated from Jefferson High School in 1953. Blue's film The Olive Trees of Justice was a sensation at the 1962 Cannes Film Festival and earned the Critics' Prize before James Blue turned to documentaries most notably with The March from 1964, about the famous March on Washington the year before, culminating with Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And there was also director James Ivory, who grew up in Klamath Falls and, like James Blue, graduated from the University of Oregon. Ivory went on to become part of the famous filmmaking team with Ismail Merchant, known as Merchant Ivory, and produced classics of the 1980s and 90s like A Room with a View and Howard's End. Yet, with apologies to Blue and Ivory, Gus Van Sant was the rock star and for a lot of years the only marquee name in town. In these first three Portland-set films he made, Malanoche, Drugstore Cowboy, and My Own Private Idaho, Gus Van Sant possessed a touch of the French New Wave directors like Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard, who transformed cinema in the late 50s and 60s by taking their cameras out of the studio and into the streets. Van Sant had a touch of Andy Warhol, the chameleon-like observer both immersed in the scene and also at a remove. As a bravely out director long before it was accepted, Van Sant was also a pioneer of gay cinema, even though Drugstore Cowboy itself, unlike Malanoche and My Own Private Idaho, was a story of heterosexuals. What excited me the most was how Gus Van Sant infused straightforward narrative dramas with a sense of visual excitement, and maybe even a touch of the surreal, borrowing from masters like Louis Bunuel and David Lynch. Even though Van Sant's early films are populated with handsome, cool young actors of their time like Matt Dillon and River Phoenix, Keanu Reeves, even though they're told in a straight narrative line without going back and forth in time, the best parts of these movies are the moments of visual punctuation. In Drugstore Cowboy that comes in the scenes where Dillon's character is shooting up, suddenly we watch as spoons, syringes, farm animals, and even a house gently fly through the clouds, giving a junkie's trip a little touch of The Wizard of Oz. In My Own Private Idaho, it's shots of salmon swimming upstream as metaphor for the River Phoenix character, searching for his mother amidst persistent narcolepsy, and the movie's most famous shot also involves a house far from its foundations, this time falling through the air and crashing onto a barren highway. Talk about not being in Kansas anymore. Yet having said all that, even in the case of a masterful cinematic stylist like Gus Van Sant, here, too, perhaps that movie's most lasting effect was to plant a seed of empathy for the residents of the St. Francis Hotel. Not the ones played by actors, but the actual people I encountered back in the late 90s on Southwest 11th Avenue when I lived on that block. When the St. Francis was torn down in 2001, I worried for these people despite never having met them. It's because Drugstore Cowboy had humanized them in their struggle. 
It's not to say I lacked any empathy before seeing the movie. I lived for several years in New York City, where homelessness and an appalling chasm between rich and poor are in ample evidence on a daily basis. But movies and great television dramas humanize people, which is all the more important today when homelessness and economic inequality levels are so high and with our country so divided. In the interview with film critic Mark Moen today, we joked a little bit about how Van Sant's career has been a bit more hit and miss in recent years. But ultimately, that doesn't matter, because at least a handful of his movies are timeless cinematic masterworks. Not just the ones set in Portland, of course, but especially those. They're a time capsule of a disappearing old Portland, but they're also a kind of artistic big bang, signifying to a new generation of local filmmakers that you don't have to go to Hollywood, at least not right away, to make movies the world remembers and to tell cinematic stories that, with great lyricism and empathy, pique the interests of the world in Portland. And now a quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped make Portland possible in a way since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building, it could be Mutual Materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store, it might be slim brick tile from Mutual Materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits, those might be made with Mutual Materials too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out Mutual Materials. In Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks very much to our producers, Amalia Boyles, Ed Curtis, and Chase Spross. A big thank you as well to my musician friends in the Washington, D.C. band Beauty Pill, and particularly songwriter Chad Clark for graciously allowing us to use one of their songs for our podcast theme. Beauty Pill's 2014 release, entitled Beauty Pill Describes Things As They Are, was named to year's best albums list by National Public Radio and Rolling Stone magazine. Keep an eye out for their upcoming record entitled Please Advise. Thanks as well to a couple other friends of mine, Maxwell Griffin for providing graphic design, including our podcast logo, and to Nikolai Kruger for creating original artworks to go with each building we feature on In Search of Portland. That artwork can be found on our website. In fact, you can find every episode of this podcast at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you made it this far, thanks very much once again for listening, and please join us next time on In Search of Portland. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>